Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Danny Moses, I have to apologize to you. I'm saying this publicly. I put the horns on you. And I know you know what that means. I made a point of saying you're 12 and 0. You're the greatest of all time. Blah, blah, blah. Then you came out with the Browns and Bengals. You said it was the 25-star pick of the year. And the Bengals didn't show up. They didn't show up, dude. Just remember what I said. I said, when I lose a game, something will happen positive for me on the stock side. And that might have been Tesla. But we'll see where it ends up after all this noise. But got something on the other side, at least. So. Without question. And we're going to hear some of your picks later on. Dan, Nathan, you want to gloat a little bit here before we get into it? There's nothing to gloat. I lost 10 weeks in a row. Danny was owning me. So there's no gloating here. I'm just happy that I'm not going to the poorhouse anymore. And maybe I get taken to the cleaners this weekend by Danny, but we'll see. We will see. By the way, Danny, you are listening to On The Tape. I am Guy Adami. I'm joined as always by both of you fellas, Dan, Nathan, and Danny Moses, It's been a pretty interesting week. Inflation is running hot. I don't care what anybody says. These numbers have been hot. Rivian made a monster public debut, and gold is finally breaking out. Later, we're going off the tape with Stephanie Link. She's a CNBC contributor and portfolio manager at Hightower. Plus, Dan and I talked to podcaster, blogger, and Finn Twitter, and huge Nick fan, Michael Batnick. My God, this is chock full of podcast. Listen, I'm just going to say real quick, those inflation numbers were ridiculous. Now, if anybody doesn't believe it now, this transitory bullshit that you hear about, as they say, the only thing that's permanent is luggage, to quote my friend Eddie Murphy, but there's a lot of other permanent things going on, and it's manifesting itself in numbers we haven't seen, Danny Moses, in 30 effing years. So CPI October, 6.2%. That's a fifth straight month over 5%. I realize maybe the comps people will say, oh, they're easy comps and so forth, but these are big numbers and it's no longer transitory. I think we kind of all agree on that. I want to say happy Veterans Day because I think that's an underappreciated holiday. It's a huge day. And with it comes the bond market being closed also. And the bond market's closed today. You can see futures trading a little bit in the bond market and it's telling you their rates are up a little bit more today or they will be tomorrow if all things hold here. So Fed fund futures have moved along with the two year in the last few days. We're now, I think, two and a half rate hikes for next year at this point. So the Fed's going to get forced here. In the middle of all of this, we're going to have a decision, whether it's Brainerd or Powell, both are dovish. Quarles is now leaving the Fed. He was a supervisor of the banks. So there's talk that if Brainerd's not made head of the Fed, she'll be in that role. So a lot of stuff going on here, a lot of noise. And again, I'll tell you this, we're coming up quickly here, not just on Thanksgiving, but on the debt ceiling issues. And so there are other issues that are non-fundamental, maybe to the stock market, they're going to create, I think, some macro noise here. So Lots of exciting stuff coming if you want to look at it that way, but I still think it remains to be seen how this inflation is going to play out and how it's going to seep into the markets. And I agree 100% on Veterans Day. little shout out to my father, Stephen B. Nathan. He was ROTC 
as a freshman at Syracuse in 1960. He went into active duty in, I think, 65 after he got his master's degree. He served in the late 60s during Vietnam. He did not go to Vietnam, and he retired a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves in the mid-80s. So shout out to my dad. He is a tremendous vet. And to all the other vets out there, thank you guys for your service. Danny, you just said a lot of exciting things coming our way here. Calamity, Dan, you know that. There it is. And guy, you just said luggage is the only thing permanent. I think what Eddie said is herpes. You keep that shit like luggage. I know what Eddie Murphy said. I know it was two things. It was luggage and herpes. I decided not to go the herpes route because I decided not to go that route. But since you did, thank you. I just think that the inability for interest rates to rise, given what we know is going on with taper, given that we know what's going on with inflation, is kind of like the herpes of the market right here. It really feels like an STD. I got to be honest with you. And I feel like there's something really bad coming. There was a tweet from David Rosenberg, who's going to be a guest on this podcast in a few weeks. And I'm a big Rosie fan. He said this this morning on Twitter. So if inflation is back to where it was in October 90 and July 08, guess what? The economy was recession bound both times. The Fed's next move was not exactly to raise rates and treasury bond yields plunged in the coming 12 months and by a lot. Bob Farrell's rule number nine reigns. Now, Guy, I know you like to use cheat sheets every once in a while. You write things on your palm as we're doing this thing here. Crip notes. What is Bob Farrell's rule number nine? When all the experts and forecasts agree, something else is going to happen. Speak to that. What you're speaking about is all the experts agree that rates are going higher. I don't think they do. I think more people are in your camp. And by the way, you're probably going to wind up being right. I would submit that given everything we're seeing, and you're right, Dan, rates should be significantly higher. There are probably a myriad of reasons why they're not. None of them matter because nobody wants to hear me say it. What I'll tell you is, and Danny knows this, real rates in this country have never been lower. That is hugely problematic. And again, it paints the Fed into a corner that is getting microscopic now, Danny Moses. It is. Listen, I love Rosenberg. I relied on him. Our whole team relied on him in the mid-2000s going into the financial crisis. He nailed the impact that lower home prices and higher mortgage rates would have on the consumer. I do think in this case, and I really look forward to talking to him in a few weeks, it's kind of gone on a little bit longer. And I think he would probably admit, and I'll ask him that question. It's probably a little bit higher than he thought, and it's probably less transitory than he thought. But I think the one thing we all don't know is what is the level of rates that really starts to have an impact, not just on the stock market, but on the consumer. We're nowhere near those levels yet. But to your point you guys just made, the minute that people realize the Fed's way behind, if we get to that level, that's a scary moment for the market. And that is something this market has not had to deal with in decades. So I just think it's uncharted territory. So people are just guessing some will be right, some will be wrong. Timing is everything here, but I think we'll start to see this start to flow into the stock market sooner rather than later. And if we do get back to the Fed's comment about maximum employment and all this stuff, how is that going to slow down inflation? I understand this concept of fixing the, quote, supply chain. Well, it takes a while to get the supply chain. You're restarting an engine here. So I think this is going to be much longer and drawn out. And of course, Dan, to your point, which you've made before, it's self-correcting to have inflation come down if it does actually cause a slowdown in the market. So that's how cycles work. This is how things happen, but we're way out of the transitory camp at this point. Well, here's non-consensus. Bob Farrell, rule number nine. I think that we run the risk of growth slowing in a way that maybe a lot of economists and forecasts don't expect. And I think that we could see huge gluts all of a sudden. Some of this demand that we're seeing because maybe it's fear of scarcity, availability. I think a story in 2022 might be gluts, which might be a huge drag on growth. So to me, I think 2022 is going to look a lot different than 2021. And let's be 
clear, 2021's economic performance has been disappointing. And we won't know what Q4 GDP looks like until Q1, but I suspect it comes in lower than people expect right now, not higher. Well, Dan, I think either of those scenarios that you and I both pointed out potentially are going to hurt the stock market. But I would say it was disappointing because of Delta. You are seeing a lot of pent-up spending here going on. There is a lot of airline bookings going on, and we've seen that. So I think Q4 could be extraordinarily strong, which goes against the stagflation argument near term, obviously. But I think longer term, if the rates moving higher have an impact on economic growth, or if things loosen up and there is a glut, either way, that's the economy slowing potentially, and that does not bode well for the stock market. Danny, I'm looking forward to speaking to Stephanie Lincoln. I'm going to ask her this question, but we've seen some crazy moves in names that, quite frankly, expected out of certain stocks, but not out of stocks with market caps of seven, ten, fifteen billion dollars. Do those moves, both up and down, concern you at all? Very much. Roblox, what moved that higher? I'm not exactly sure. It wasn't like a stellar quarter. Some of the metrics were good, some were bad, but you're talking about a company that has a market cap of $55, $60 billion, and it's up 42%, so that's up. You get a firm, which obviously traded down into the quarter, pre-earnings traded from 157 to 133, that's a 40 billion market cap, and trades back up to 150 post-earnings. DoorDash, 192 to 180 post-close on reporting the numbers. Then it goes up to $220 on announcement of $8 billion acquisition of Wolt, which is a comp of theirs over in Europe. What's funny about that is there's a whole regulator in Europe. It goes back to the point of what makes a stock move and, and what doesn't make a stock move. And it's really inconsistent, in my opinion. And then you have something like a PayPal, which we talked about before. Was the quarter great? No. It was in line. A slight guide down. Is that an overreaction to where it was? It's not a cheap stock, but they're in all the right things. They've checked the box on electronic payments. They've checked the box on crypto. And now they're finally freed up away from eBay, announced the deal with Amazon. And whether that was expected or not, it's just amazing to me, certain stocks that move on the same news and certain stocks that don't. And so that to me is not the sign of a healthy market. That is a potluck surprise of earnings that we're seeing. One of the big stories this week was the Rivian coming public with a gangbuster opening and a subsequent move. The stock, I think, started, you know, and now here we are. I think with the prices we're seeing this week, it's north of $100 billion. I mean, maybe justifiably, I have no idea, but I'll say this. Makes you wonder what Ford and GM are worth, Dan. I know you have some thoughts on this, but Rivian dominated the headlines this week. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, it's a $100 billion market cap company right now. And I think that some of the pundits were saying it's pre-revenue. They did start shipping some cars this week. I saw one of the trucks, the R1T. It looks amazing. Our friend Packy McCormick, who's been on the podcast on many occasions, and we actually had a bonus episode of a deep dive that he did into the Rivian story earlier this week. So check that out. I actually went in and put a deposit on, Danny's rolling his eyes right here, on the R1S. That's the SUV that's supposed to come out next year, fully electric. The car Car looks amazing, but does it deserve a $100 billion market cap here? No, I've said this on Fast Money. I don't blame the company and I don't blame the bankers. This is investors who are willing to pay for this. Some of the same investors that paid a $28 billion valuation in January. So now it is $100 billion. And then you look down what's going on in the stock market. I see plenty of EV stories that are just going ballistic right now today. As I look, Lordstown Motor, the ticker is RIDE, is up 20 plus percent right now, drafting off of what's going on with Tesla and Rivian here. But this has a one point. 2 
billion dollar market cap. So the divide is real. I don't know what's going on. It all seems a bit divorced from reality to me, but let's see. It seems like signs of the top, if you will. As far as Ford's concerned, they own 12% of Rivian. You can do the math on that guy, right? A $100 billion market cap. And this company is starting to at least be revalued based on their ambitions in EV and obviously this investment. So listen, on some of these companies in the EV space, obviously the infrastructure bill has spending for EV. That's a macro tailwind that's out there. Lordstown finally signed that deal with Foxconn to buy the plant. They're not making anything anyway, but there is a strategic investment being made by Foxconn. So again, it doesn't take a lot for some of these heavily shorted names to get a boost when they know they have the macro win. What Elon Musk did over the weekend, taking a survey was bullshit because he had already filed a 10B51 plan, it turns out, on September 14th. He was going to sell stock regardless, at least some of it, I think the first million shares. And I can tell you the shares he sold on Tuesday and Wednesday, that's some bad execution by the brokerage. He probably doesn't care, but a range of 1,000 to 1173 over a two-day period. So again, it just brings the fact of where's the corporate governance in that company, the board selling stock every single day. That's just not how you run a trillion-dollar company. I can't believe it is actually a trillion. But anyway, yes, it did have some volatility, and it probably will continue to do so. And so these EV names, to your point with Rivian, have a ton of tailwinds on them. And I still think it's a decent macro trade for now until proven differently. Yeah, but think about this. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, and he's got the most highly valued automobile company the world has ever seen. It's equal to, what, 90% of the global market. He won. It's over. The SEC hasn't touched him. No one will ever touch him. And so I think we have to start thinking about things in a different framework. To quote former President Bush here, there's some weird shit going on here. We have, at the high end of this, we have Tesla at $1.1 trillion market cap. And then we have this Rivian that just came public at a one hundred and one billion dollar market cap. And then we have this Lordstown Motor, which I guess I misspoke here. There's other reasons why the stock is up a lot today, as you just mentioned. Okay. But it's got a $1.1 billion market cap. They're all going to make electric vehicles. Now, if the history of automobile companies over the last hundred years or something is any guide here, plenty of these companies are going to go away. So I just think it's kind of interesting. We're 1.1 trillion down to 1.1 billion in the public markets. Just to draw comparisons again, back to the dot-com bubble, you had all those fiber companies, Nortel, Lucent, all those names that were out there, obviously at the time in Quest Communications, there was a stat that if you could take the fiber, which they said that they actually had the capacity for, it would wrap around earth like a hundred times. So to your point, Dan, the math works for so long until it's real. And once it becomes real and you have earnings and you're making cars, that's the irony. That's the time that these stocks will actually trade down. I'm happy for Ford. I'm happy for GM that they're finally getting a little boost off of this because if anyone's more deserving, it's those companies that have traded such a depressed PE for so long. And it's great to see what they're doing. So at least there is some auto benefiting from it. Before we get to the segment that we like to call a rip off the tape or a rot, I know, Danny, you have some thoughts on the Robin Hood. I do. And where all these stocks trade, right? Where all these meme stocks trade. But here's another breach. But why would there be a breach? They decided to spend $11.7 million on customer service on a 400-person operation in North Carolina. I'm sure they train these employees well. 5 million emails, they say. I'm sure it's 10. 2 million full names. I'm sure it's 7. 300 users is more extensive information. It's already coming out that it's probably a little bit more than what they're saying. I just think it's a joke at this point. To have a company like this trafficking in this much money and this many accounts, 22.4 million accounts to have this, this should be for every broker. And I think it is for most of them, the thing that's of utmost importance, customer service and so forth. So before I go into my rot, I just had the mini rot on Robinhood because they never cease to disappoint with something that should be an automatic when you're dealing in the brokerage community. 
When I was a young man, there were two car rental companies. It was Avis and it was Hertz back in the day. Now there are multiple, but Danny's Rot today revolves around symbol HTZ. Danny, the stage is yours. Yeah, listen, this is not actually a call on the Hertz stock per se. This is a call on what's gone on in the last few weeks on it. And I'll start and work my way backwards. So Barron's, a well-respected, amazing journal, right? I read it every week. The headline came across as, quote, Hertz raises $1.3 billion in re-IPO. Let me be very clear. They raised nothing. They were selling shareholders. Hertz themselves bought back $300 million. So this stock was sitting at 15, 20, 25, makes its way obviously above 30 on a decent quarter and so forth. But here they are, post Tom Brady announcement, buying back stock. So if you're a shareholder of this company, you just bought back stock at $29. So let me just say that from the outset. They filed chapter 11 last year. They reemerged from bankruptcy earlier this year. They started listing again in July under HTZZ. They just recently uplisted to HTZ in conjunction with this transaction. I'm not going to try to say what the company is worth or not. What I'm saying is that benefited the investors which came to Hertz Rescue that recapped the company. And to watch a stock move like that and to transact at that level with that misinformation on the tape just made me realize that people don't really understand what's going on. And here's the thing. Hertz was a huge meme stock last year, if you guys remember. It traded down at $2 last year. People were buying it and we're sitting there going, it's bankrupt. What are you doing? All those investors lost their money. The thing recaps it now and it's happening all over again. So what did Hertz announce on October 25th? Tom Brady, probably the best news you could have for a stock. If you want to be associated with somebody, that's great. And a $4.2 billion deal to buy Tesla vehicles, which is still up in the air. So I just don't see how a stock that goes from 15 in September to 20 in October and then gets another boost on the Avis quarter to do a deal at 29 bucks a share. It's that time of the show where we get into Danny Moses' head. Now, I mentioned earlier that I put the horns on him. 12 and 0 is historic. But this is, I believe, week 10 in the league where they play for pay. Danny Moses, what do you have for us this week? Get back on the horse. All right, guy. I got two picks this week for you. I'm going to get back on the winning side of things. All right. The best thing a football team can do when they're kind of out of sync is to play the Jets. So I like the Bills minus 12 and a half against the Jets coming into New York. So they're angry. They played horribly last week in Jacksonville. They lost three weeks ago to Tennessee. I think they're angry. I think they'll pound the Jets. Can I stop you for a second? I don't know how the Bills lost to Jacksonville. I don't know how the Bills only scored six points. I know everybody's bowing at the altar of Mike White. The Bills this week might come in and put a 50 spot up against the Jets. I am so with you on that, Danny Moses. Thank you. Thank you. Next one is what I should have done last week, but I, I've been riding the Patriots all year. And against Carolina, another former Jet quarterback that was playing with one arm. I mean, I like the Pats this week. And yes, I'm going to go against the Brownies again. I know they buried me last week, but I'm taking the Patriots minus two and a half at home. I feel like if anyone can figure out how to stop Baker Mayfield, it's Belichick. I like the Patriots, still the most underrated team in football and probably the most consistent team in this point of football. So Bills and Patriots are my two picks this week. Dan Nathan, would you like to jump in here? All right, Danny, as Guy Adami would say, kind of old school stuff, I'm two dimes in the hole to you here. I'm down too large. I made 16 hunch back last week on your first loss of the entire season on, on the tape here. No, I lost 1600 on one of your picks that I decided to take the other side of. Let's just be clear. I did lose. I gave one pick out last week. Okay, I did lose on the brownies, but go ahead. Okay, here are my two picks. And I'm working with somebody here, a really smart guy here. It's my main man, James, here. So I want to take Baltimore minus seven versus Miami, okay? And then Detroit getting nine in Pittsburgh. Do you have any interest in those two games here? I definitely don't have interest in the Miami-Baltimore game. 
I'll take Pittsburgh if you want me to take Pittsburgh. I'll do that. You want to do that for a nickel? All right, Danny. Detroit plus nine for a nickel. That's five hundred. So this time next week, folks, Dan will either be twenty five hundred in the hole or he have whittled it down to fifteen hundred. Stay tuned to see what happens when we come back. The great Stephanie Link. After that, Michael Batnick. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Stephanie Link is the Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Hightower, a national wealth management firm that provides investment, financial, and retirement planning services to individuals, foundations, and family offices, as well as 401k consulting and cash management services to corporations. She's also a CNBC contributor making frequent appearances on The Halftime Report, Squawk Box, Closing Bell, and Power Lunch. Stephanie Link, it is amazing to have you join us on the tape. First and foremost, you're a badass. Now, you're going to say, oh, no, I'm that guy, and you're going to get all blushy and stuff, but you get up every day, and you run, you work out. I want you to talk about that, because that speaks to a discipline, and then we're going to get into the markets, because that discipline carries over. Well, it's great to see you guys. Thanks for inviting me. So I learned a long time ago that this business is very, very stressful. You're never off. You're always on. Even at two in the morning when you roll over and get some water, you're still on and you're checking emails and you're checking tweets and you have to have a release. I was an athlete growing up. I was a a tennis player growing up. So I was always active, always busy, always doing. And when I quit, because I got too bored of it, I had to have a substitute and the substitute was running and it kind of carried over into the business world. And so, but I found that I couldn't do it in the middle of the day. I couldn't do it at the end of the day. I will never have the discipline to work out at the end of the day. It's too busy. It's too stressful. So I like to start my day early and that actually, it's on a treadmill and that actually helps me because I watch sports and I always DVR everything. And Dan knows this, not to talk about any sport to me on on a day-to-day basis because it took me three days to watch the Super Bowl. And I'm not even kidding you. So people are astounded by that. They're like, are you living under a rock or what? But it does help the, it it helps the beginning of the day and just start the day well. And and, and then you feel really invigorated, ready to take charge. Well, Stephanie, I've known you for about 10 years. We got to meet through CNBC and Guy and I doing this podcast over almost a year now. We've gotten to speak with in this format with a lot of people, a lot of friends that we've made along the way through our experience with CNBC. And you are truly one of them. And I think that little vignette is very clear. You're an athlete. And, and you know, when I met you, you were working with Jim Cramer. You were helping him run his Actions Alert Plus for the street.com. And I, I suspect you were doing a whole heck of a lot of research. You were coming on air and you were talking about it and you guys were investing in different names. And to work with Jim 
you have to be an athlete. We all know him and we love him. Tell us about that experience. And I assume, you know, after you had a great career on the sell side and on the buy side, so you were a strategist, an analyst, and you're a money manager. And then you go to work with Jim Cramer. What was that like? I was on the sell side for 16 years. And you know the sell side. No one's paying for research. I'm amazed that there's so many firms that have survived, to be honest with you. I personally like research, especially on the sell side, because it gives you information. I don't use them for stock picking, but no one really wants to pay for it. That's the problem. So after 16 years, I wanted to change my career. Well, it's not so easy going from the sell side to the buy side, because I think the buy side doesn't really take the sell side seriously. And so Random had a mutual friend with Jim. He introduced us. We met for 30 minutes and he hired me on the spot. And by the way, that 30 minutes, it wasn't, well, what do you like to do? And tell me about your process. It was stocks. We just talked about stocks, about 20 different names in 30 minutes. And we we actually found that we agreed on a lot of the names. And I know he doesn't get a lot of credit because people think he's crazy, but he's brilliant. And he knows what he's really good at is he's good at tactical buying and selling. He's emotional. There's no doubt about it. He's more momentum and I'm more value. So we definitely had a lot of all caps on emails over the years. But he taught me how to manage money because it's different being on the sell side, just marketing analysts and marketing ideas versus running a portfolio and looking at benchmarks and looking at sectors and all that sort of thing. So he taught me a lot. I thought I would be there for two years, Dan, and all of a sudden I was there for like seven, but it was really a, it was a great partnership, a great relationship. And that's how I started my CNBC career too. So it was really a wonderful thing. I will tell you one story about him, just tells you about the heart that he has. The day before I was about to start, I had a, I had a six month year old and I said, I I can't leave her. I I can't possibly leave her because I just, I'll, I'll miss her too much. And I always wanted to have a career and a family. So I was willing to balance it. But I call him up and I say, Jim, I just can't join you. And I was supposed to start that following day. And he said, wait a minute, wait, wait, what? And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't want to leave my daughter all the time. So he said, well, what is it going to take? I said, well, could I work a couple of days from home? He goes, like what? Like how much? And I said, maybe two. He goes, take three. Now, this was before the Zoom world. And this is before people worked at home. And I worked harder being out of the office that I did in the office as a result, but he made it work and it just speaks to, he's a really genuine person and he's a really good friend. It's interesting, Stephanie, you mentioned Jim. Jim's been really kind to us on Fast Money over the years. He's, listen, if, if Jim didn't want Fast Money to exist, Fast Money would not exist. He was a huge advocate for the show and then subsequently, obviously, the halftime report. But when I watch you on TV and obviously I do every time you're on, you have an encyclopedic knowledge. There's a lot of Jim Cramer in you. It's amazing how you were able to rattle off some of the facts that you are. And I know you prepare a great deal, but did that influence of Jim really have an impact on your career? Clearly it did if you just watch your CNBC hits. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you, Guy. I think that he definitely had an influence on the way I told a story. And that was back to my institutional sales days. I had to learn how to tell a story to the clients too, but I only refined that with Jim. And what I found really amazing with Jim, and it's a talent, He keeps himself, I mean, he's not calm, but he keeps himself focused and he keeps it simple. 
He wants everybody to understand. And that's the way I invest. If I don't understand something, if I don't understand a sector, I'm not going there. I might have to really dig deep and learn. Like the EV space, it took me a while just to get my hands around it. Same with crypto. And I'm embracing it now, but I do a lot of homework and I have to try to understand it. And then and then I have to relate it to my in, in my own mind and to the audience. Stephanie, nice to actually meet you for the first time and see you. And thanks for coming on here. I was in institutional equity sales for years also, and I always thought that was a great training ground to deal with different personalities across all different sectors. As a matter of fact, Jim Cramer, he won't remember me, but was a client of mine for a brief time until he probably hung up on me enough that I didn't call him back again. But anyway, that's a whole different story. But actually, I actually see you on television quite a bit, and and you've been great on your market calls thus far. I remember in September, you were out there saying, just ride out the storm a little bit. The market can absorb what's going on, the stuff that was going on in China things that I like to focus on and probably get too caught up in, you kind of take in stride. Just curious now with where we are post-Fed meeting, pre-debt ceiling issues that are obviously coming, a little bit post-earnings for the most part, what your current market thoughts are and how you would advise your clients right now. Yeah, I think you stay long into the end of the year seasonally. It is a strong period. I also would say that last week I learned a ton in terms of the economy and what happened in October. Because remember in September, everybody was very nervous, Delta variant, supply chain issues, job shortages, and the markets fell at 1.5% from peak to trough, right? And then we rallied. Last week, we learned that October recovered from September and from the third quarter weakness. Specifically, ISM services is at a record high, 66.7. My jaw dropped, you know, from when I saw the number. That's a huge, huge number. So clearly, there's pent-up demand. And why service is important, it's 67% of GDP. But also, we got great job numbers across the board, ADP, Challenger Gray, initial claims back to March 2020 levels, non-farm payroll numbers. So those two pieces are really good. I think the consumer, $2 trillion in excess savings, they have pent-up demand. And I would just say, yesterday on CNBC, the UAL CEO, I'm sure you guys saw it, he basically said that they were at 100% load factors this past weekend, mainly from international visitors, now that the ban has been lifted. And that speaks volumes, right? I mean, Expedia said, the same thing. They're booked out higher summer of 22 versus 21. And so I just listen to what companies have to say. And it does look like we're, we're on the road to recovery. And we're not going to see another 2% GDP number in the fourth quarter like we just saw in the third quarter. So I think we see above trend growth because we still have a ton of stimulus in the system. Again, as mentioned, seasonally, um, it's a strong period. Now, 2022, I think is going to be much more challenging. I maybe think the first half will be much of the same. But then we have to see does the tape does the taper come sooner? Is inflation out of control? And I would argue the rents and wages are very sticky. They're not transitory. And that's problematic. I mean, rents are up 5%. The Dallas Fed said they expect 6% by 2023 in rent increases. So that's big deal, right? And uh, even though wages are up, inflation is a real threat. And I wonder if they're going to see demand destruction sometime in 2022. But for now, let's enjoy it. Let's be long. And everything is working at this point, right? I mean, like it's tech, it's comm services, it's financials, it's energy, it's value and growth. So just let it ride. Pick your favorite sectors, your favorite names, and and let's re- re- readjust in, in the beginning of next year. One of the talked about, which I don't agree with, and I think they're a little bit lost, is waiting for maximum employment, whatever that might be. They didn't even give you a definition. So to your point and what you're talking about, I think the four of us have seen a few cycles together, obviously, over time. But this is the first time you've seen potentially, to your point, sticky inflation accelerating a little bit more than we've seen in the past. And maybe some of it's transitory, maybe some of it's not. But I guess my question to you is, what are you going to look for that is a signal 
to sell the stocks, you know, or to say, you know, maybe pull back out of the markets a little bit? Is it rates hitting a certain level or kind of what is the tipping point you would look at? I think rates are going to stay fairly low. They may rise a little bit from here because growth is a little better and inflation is a little better, a bit higher. But the Fed is still so accommodative, right? They're still buying so much in terms of QE, even though they're tapering. And so I am watching inflation because if that gets out of control and we don't see some of these supply chain bottlenecks start to ease up, it could really get much higher than I thought and much more serious. And the Fed is going to be forced at that point. Look, at the end of the day, I look at initial claims on the job front. Initial claims is forward-looking indicator. And again, I mentioned before, but we're back to March 2020 lows. So jobs are getting, we're improving absolutely. Um, so that kind of, you kind of have to like ch- check the box, if you will. It's the inflation side that I think you have to worry about. And if, if we do see inflation, I'm already leaning on more value, on more commodities in my portfolio, um, on more cyclicals. I would probably be more inclined to shift even more there and probably ease off of some of the consumer names, especially discretionary. Even though I think the consumer is good, again, I mentioned demand destruction. I wonder if, if, if inflation really starts to eat into the consumer demand. So Steph, do you worry a little bit though that we have this highest inflation expectations in 30 years and, and interest rates can't get out of their own way? And when we're talking about, you just said that everything is working and everything's working a little too well, if you think about it. When, when you think of some of the, just the pockets of enthusiasm in the stock market, and I'm not even going to talk about crypto. So do we run the risk of just an epic, epic bubble forming? And then what happens when we come back to 2% GDP? Because one thing is sure as shit right here. We are coming back to 2% GDP. You know why? Because the 10 years prior to the pandemic, we averaged about 2.2%. And interest rates were very accommodative. And I just don't think interest rates are ever going up meaningfully again here. And so I just think we run the risk of having these inflating bubbles, investment bubbles, and then having them deflate. And like I said, Everything might be working. There's a lot of stuff in the stock market that's not working well. And we spend a lot of time talking about that, at least highlighting some of that stuff. So do you worry the fact that 2021, the steepest peak to trough decline we had was a little less than 6% and that something really nasty could happen to just reset expectations in Q1 2022? That's entirely possible. That's why I say 2022 is going to be a lot harder than 2021 and even 2020. You could have thrown a dart at anything in 2020 in the spring, right? And you'd make money. I mean, we all did. I think pretty sure we all did. Right. And as everybody was hiding under the table, you know, you got to buy when it, when you're hiding under the table. That's the that's that's the telltale in my view anyway. But 2022 will be very challenging because we have to look at the inflation piece because we haven't had inflation in how long. Right. The Fed has been wanting inflation. All of a sudden they're going to get it. They already have it. And it depends on it. Can the supply chains get fixed? Do people go back to work? Those are the two things, right? But as I mentioned earlier, rents are going higher at a 5% annualized rate and rents follow housing and home prices. And we know home prices are up 20% year over year and it lags by about a year. So you're just beginning to see rents go higher and that's much stickier. And I'm not sure the Fed changing their tune is really gonna change that. At least it'll be a lag. So I do worry. I, wor- I worry that the Fed is behind the curve, and then then all of a sudden they, you know, kind of, this kind of hits them in the face, and they act too aggressively. I don't know any Fed that's gotten it right, quite frankly. I know it's a hard job, but I, we've been around. We all have been around for a very long time, and I just don't know 
anyone that's really been able to navigate on a real-time basis. And so I think they are communicating, they're over-communicating, quite frankly. And I don't mind it because that's how we can analyze what, but, you know, things are changing so rapidly. So yeah, Dan, I totally think it's possible to have a correction and shake out some of these weaker hands like the Robin Hoods of the world. But, you know, I think that would be still an opportunity provided that there is still such an enormous amount of liquidity in the system. We're still at 44% GDP if you add up monetary and fiscal policies put in place. If you add those two together, 44% of GDP. Last crisis in 2008, it was 5% if you combine the two. So we are enormous emergency liquidity that we don't need. And I don't know when the Fed is going to wake up and realize that. Steph, just to build on what Dan asked you, we all know what happens with penny stocks and we've all seen binary biotech stocks. I mean, we understand that we actually expect it. But then you see a name like Avis. So the symbol there, obviously, C-A-R. This is a $15 billion company, one $5 billion market cap company, goes from 170 to 502 to 250. And then you see names like Chegg and Zillow on the flip side of that. Does that worry you at all in terms of now their stocks, you know, with meaningful market caps? Totally worries me. And I I say those kinds of stocks are meme stocks um, or where Robinhood people get involved in them. They're not looking at fundamentals. They're not at all. And that's playing. You're playing with ideas and stocks. You're not investing and you're not, they're trading them. I know they're not investing them, but that's not the way to analyze a company and that's not the way to buy or sell a company, right? It just seems like, yes, these stocks, some of them are these extreme reactions on fundamentals that are not even existent or they're okay, but you know, maybe there just was this high short interest and everyone tags it because of that. And so to me, thank God those names are not in my benchmark. My benchmark is the S&P 500. If any of them were, it would give me a big fat headache. But for now, it's a small piece of the overall market, but it's certainly something to watch in terms of bubble and in terms of extreme. We've seen not just Avis, and much larger market cap companies move around. And we, we talk about it on the show a lot. I mean, these are 60, 70, 80 billion market cap names moving 15, 20, 25% pre-market, post-market. They kind of reverse on an earnings release and change. That's not a healthy market, you know, in terms of you can say it's a, we're still in a bull market when you look at the S&P 500 and things like that. But underneath the surface, we talk about this a lot. So how do you guide investors that don't just buy the SPY to what to kind of look for? Because when these stocks, to your point, that don't trade on fundamentals break down, there is no bottom to them. And I think people get caught in this game here. So it's very difficult to, to tell people what would your advice be to people to what they should be looking for? I got to tell you, I wouldn't be involved in any of them. I mean, there's a company today that actually is a really good company, Bumble. And it took off when they did the IPO because I own Match, by the way. So it's a competitor. But it's down 20% today. It does have strong fundamentals. They're just investing more. And all of a sudden, to your point, but this is a real company. This is not a meme name. And all of a sudden, you have, you're down 20%. But the problem is when you invest in a company that doesn't have earnings or is trades at a very high multiple on price to sales. I love that one. I mean, to try to justify the valuation, you run the risk of this very thing happening. And so to me, I'm a little old fashioned. I look at fundamentals. I look at earnings. I look at PE. I'm a little more value. I look for margin expansion. I look for free cash flow. These are all boring, boring things. I know. I know. One of my largest positions is IBM. And you're going to say, oh, my God. But there's a story to be had there. There's a story to be had there. But my my point is, look, I do own some of the high growth names because I do think you want to have exposure to total addressable markets. But you can't have your whole portfolio there. 
So you could have, I have like maybe five names that are kind of higher multiple names and I watch them and I right size them properly. They're not huge in my portfolio, but I have anchors that I have in my portfolio that I know are not going to go out of business. And yeah, okay, IBM went down 9% on the earnings. I can handle that though, because I know it's an overreaction and I know the story in the company. So I know to buy that weakness, but I don't know when you tell me, when do I, when do I buy, you know, AMC when it's falling, when it's in free fall? And when do you buy any of these EV names that have zero earnings and it's all on a pipe stream, right? I mean, I'm not saying that EV is not a great total addressable market story because it is, but it's just extreme and I can't make sense of the valuation. So I would say if you want to play there and you're playing, just know what you own and right size it and and offset it with some quality companies so that you can sleep a little bit better at night. None of us sleep. But listen, it's interesting you mentioned IBM and I get it. And you know, the, the problem is you know the IBM story better than the CEO of IBM is able to articulate the story. And why do I mention that? Because he was on Closing Bell, I think, last Friday or something. He was in a coat closet, number one. I don't know if you saw the interview. Number two, there was banging in the background. And then I think Sarah asked him a question about the cloud, and he said something to the effect of people don't understand the cloud, which was then his ability to pivot and say, but here I am, I'm going to explain to you what we're doing, which he didn't do. I happen to think the Red Hat acquisition was tremendously overpaid, but that's okay. But they've done a shitty job. Yes, I said shitty of explaining to the street the implementation and how well it's going. So my question to you is, in today's world, being able to tell the stories as CEO is just as important as having a story. So at a certain point, you know, this media world that a lot of people rail against actually does matter. Absolutely. And to speak to that point, so I bought this in January of this year, and they heard me pitch the name on TV on halftime many times, by the way. And I, as you would imagine, I got beaten up silly for it because, oh my God, how do you even, what even is IBM? No one knew the story. I didn't even know the story, but I had done homework on it. And I did like what they were doing in terms of the transition into the cloud and into AI and, and into consulting. And I liked the valuation. I liked the yield while I wait. So I'm on TV in the first two quarters, they beat expectations, they raised estimates, and I get a call from the IR person who says, have been seeing you, You're, you've supported our stock, we would love to meet you. And Arvind, the CEO, would like to meet you too. And that's the power of TV. Guys, I'm sure this happens to you all the time too. Someone hears you talk about something and they're like, you nailed it. Let me actually tell you what, what you don't know. And so off camera and offline, when I met this, and they he, they set up the whole, you know, Megillah, CEO, CFO, CMO, CTO, and the whole thing. And they told the story and they had it, they told a really good story. And so perhaps maybe Arvin needs to have help in terms of his media skills. All of us have been doing this for a really, really long time and it takes a while to refine it, but maybe he needs coaching a little bit, uh, but he can tell the story in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with investors. Otherwise I would not be invested in the stock or in the company or any company for that matter. Here's some free advice stuff. He, they should change the name of the company. And I mean that really seriously, because I think that we're just in kind of a new world here. And if stories matter and the, this is, they do matter. I mean, think about this week, Rivian came public 
with a hundred billion dollar market cap. It literally was born into being a meme stock, if you think about it. I mean, like it really is, right? And Tesla is the OG meme stock because it's got $1.1 trillion market cap and it is divorced from any logical fundamentals that any of the four of us have brought up in this business can justify. So my question for you is that your benchmark versus the S&P 500. The S&P 500 has six stocks that make up 25% of the weight of that index of 500 stocks. They are $10 trillion in market cap. And two of them just went up a trillion dollars together in a month. Microsoft gained a half a trillion dollars and Tesla gained a half a trillion dollars. And Nvidia gained $300 billion. So to me, something is broken here and it can continue to go this way. But I'm telling you, unless you're telling me that 25 years of me seeing what's gone on with kind of these cycles and with bubbles inflating and popping, if that's all out the window, fine. I could be the dumbest guy on this podcast easily, maybe the dumbest guy in the market. So my question to you is, are you worried that something's broken here? Because I don't think it's bullish when you see at this this stage of the game, right about as we're supposedly going to raise interest rates and we're tapering and all that sort of stuff over the next year, year and a half. I just see this as less than bullish when I see that sort of crowding. And then when we see this scenario that Danny said on the other side of it, where things, there's no low, low enough for bad stories. No, I mean, I, I, well, I, I can't disagree with you. It's total momentum investing. It's fear of missing out. It's managers, portfolio managers, not performing their benchmark. So they're losing on a relative basis. And so they say, okay, Microsoft goes up all day, all day long and it's 4% of my bench. I got to go and make it 6% so I can catch up between now and the end of the year so I can beat my benchmark. I saw it at, at Nuveen. I've seen it around in my 30 years. I, you know, you talk to PMs and they're, they're, some of them just don't even care. They're, they're just momentum inve- investors. They expect earnings revisions. Earnings revisions are positive. They see it in a screen. I got to go buy it. And whatever is working, I'm just going to own it and chase it. And that's scary. I could never, ever make sense of it. As I said, I only own about five names that I'm a little uncomfortable owning in terms of where the valuations are or what the moves have been. But not owning Microsoft, that means I'm short 400 basis points of Microsoft, right? And I can, as a PM, do that. Otherwise, I'm going to fall way behind. That being said, do you remember, you guys remember this, um, last, I guess it was from maybe November until March, Fang massively underperformed. And everyone was like in a panic and the growth managers were underperforming. And what worked? Well, it was the cyclicals that worked because we kind of thought that we were past COVID. As it turns out, we were not past COVID. But it was interesting to see it doesn't take much for these to take a pause. But between now and the end of the year, people are, the PMs are going to chase whatever's working because they are underperforming their bench. I, I know it to be a fact. And it's sad because it's not fundamental investing. This is exacerbated, I think, by passive investing in general. And obviously, if there's ETFs that follow the indices, it becomes self-fulfilling that some of these names, and to your point, if you're not long Tesla, you're massively underperforming a lot of these indices. But you're old school like us. I mean, you look the youngest by far, which I'm sure you are, but you're, you're old school like us. But stock picking is somewhat of a lost art. And I feel like it always takes a correction. We talk about meme stocks in general to get people focused on that again. Do you see signs? Because I'm seeing starting to see signs, even though we're in a bull market, that stock picking is mattering more and more. And what does that mean to you? I hope you're right. And I think I'm starting to see it a little bit, but we've seen false starts before. 
I think stock picking is critical. I mean, you haven't had to do it in a long time, many, many years, right? All you needed to do really is own technology, be overweight technology. So I do think fundamentals matter. I do think that since we haven't had a correction, and the reason we haven't had a big, big correction, Dan mentioned maybe a little under 6% this year at one point, but we haven't had a correction because you got all this liquidity. You got, until you have the liquidity really drain off, that's not, that's when we're going to really find out if people know what the heck they're doing, and they and a lot of them don't, unfortunately. And I look, I, there's a lot of things I'm not, you know, I don't do well. I'm not right all the time. I don't call, make all the right calls. But I do think that the liquidity is bailing everything out at this point. So that needs to drain through the system so we can see exactly where rates settle, where is inflation, what happens to growth to Dan's point. Do we go right back to 2% GDP and trend growth? And if that's the case, by the way, guys, if we go back to trend growth, which is not what I'm predicting, at least now until maybe second half of 2022. If we go back to trend growth, guess what's going to continue to work? Fang, growth, momentum, because we all know when you don't have any growth, you look for growth names. And so you're going to have a vicious rotation again. So we have to watch and see and hope that, and I know investing hope is not an investment process, but I do, I do hope that we can stay stronger for longer because as an economy, we deserve it after all that we've been through. And I really want it to be led by the consumer. And so far, it's being led by the consumer. And that's good. And that's 70% of GDP. So there's a lot of things to watch and a lot of things to be worried about. But you guys know better than me. The market always worries about something. You've heard me say this on TV a dozen times. It's when we don't worry about something is when I worry, because that means everybody is complacent, right? And, and then you're kind of vulnerable. So let's see. We'll keep sentiment in check. Liquidity is here for a while longer. And uh, eventually, I hope stock picking does matter because I am a stock picker. Steph, you're more than that. I started this interview saying you were a badass. I'm going to end it by saying the same. For me, that's high praise. And I'll also say this. You might not be the loudest voice. You're certainly not the most self-aggrandizing voice, but you're one of the most thoughtful voices on CNBC. And you mentioned hope. Well, we all hope that you come back and join us on the tape. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It was a pleasure to be here. I miss you guys. Thanks, Steph. We miss you too. When we come back, I dig this guy, the brilliant Michael Batnick. Hey, it's Dan here. I wanted to let you know about a brand new podcast from Rich Russell Media called Breaking Even with former golf pro Ned Michaels. We cover everything from golf to real estate, options trading, and sports betting. Each week, Ned is joined by some of the biggest names in golf and sports handicapper, Jonathan Coachman. Guy Danny and I drop by to attempt to fix Ned's swing at the markets. New episodes drop every Thursday, so follow it in your favorite podcast store and don't forget to leave us a review. So I don't usually get triggered by douchebags on the internet. I never tweet about the Knicks. What's to talk about, right? Nobody cares about my opinion about the Knicks. But I tweeted one time last year during the playoffs and somebody goes, oh, fair weather fan. And there was an Eagles asshole. It was an Eagles fan. I had to take a walk. I was so angry. I said, dude, I've wasted literally years of my life watching this team. Don't you fucking dare, sir. All right. So just so you know, we don't bleep out the F word okay, so. on, on the tape. So I know you guys do that on Compound and Friends, and I think you do it on Animal Spirits. Guys, that is Michael Batnick. You guys know Michael. He is the author of the Irrelevant Investor blog. He's a monster on FinTwit. I think he's at Michael Batnick. He is partners to a very good friend, a guy and myself, Josh Brown over there at Ritholtz Wealth Management. They also have a podcast that they do called Compound and Friends. He also has an amazing podcast called Animal Spirits with Ben Carlson that we're going to get to this. 
You had a post, Michael, a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago that you guys crossed 10 million downloads for your podcast, which is truly astounding. Congratulations on that. Welcome to On the Tape with Guy and myself. It is exciting to be here, Dan. I've known you for a while. I've seen Guy. Guy's been in my life for 20 years. I never met him. So this is a thrill for me. It's a thrill for me as well. And you know what I dig? I love smart people. And when I started the show, as Dan will say, in 1972, with Tim Strazzini, Eric Bowling, Dylan Radigan, and Jeff Mackey. Jeff Mackey was the smartest person I'd ever met in my life. He was off the charts. And then, lo and behold, this TRB character came strolling in with his headphones on and his sneakers unlaced. And then he starts spieling. I'm like, holy shit, this guy's a fucking genius. And you know what? I never underestimated Josh. And with that, I've never underestimated you because you're brilliant as well. It's a thrill to have you join us here on the tape. By the way, you do that compound thing. I use compound W, so we have that in common. All right, Michael, tell us a little bit, because I met you when Josh was coming on the show. I know that you were helping him do a lot of the research, right, for your firm. Was Withelts started back then? Was this like seven, eight years ago? And you started working with them. And your role has expanded. You are literally the media linchpin, as you will. And Josh, he left Twitter. Now he just blogs a little bit on his thing. But you're blogging every day. You do a bunch of podcasts here. I see you pop on CNBC every once in a while. What is your relationship to the markets and how has, for instance, media creation. How has that been a big part of your everyday life here? It's everything for me at this point. It is, if you were to look over my shoulder, like how is my day structured? It's total chaos. It's complete and total chaos. It has become part of my life. Obviously I do podcasts about six days a week. I blog when I have time, talk to my advisors every day, talk to my partners every day. So it is a lot at Ritholtz, you're really working with the advisors. You're not actually working with clients per se. And I know that every one of your advisors, and I know a bunch of them are, I know who they are because they all have web properties, whether it be on social, whether it be a podcast, that sort of thing. So it seems like you kind of created this model about how you're going to just basically represent the firm and what you do and how you do it. And I assume that it also serves as an important marketing aspect for you guys. Yeah. Listen, it's a lot. This is a very difficult business. It is difficult to convince somebody, especially strangers to give you their money. And so it's a lot easier to do that when they're either fans and or consumers of your content. At least they are starting at the 50 yard line, right? You still have to convince them to give you their money, that you're going to provide value, that you're going to deliver on what you say you're going to do. But having at least a baseline and rapport before they come in gives us a big advantage. Look, Dan's going to handle the business end of this podcast. I'm going to handle the funnest shit. And I think What I find fascinating, the people on Twitter, the best people on Twitter are the ones that sort of troll people and they don't even know it's coming. And this is why I mentioned it, because you put out a tweet earlier this week that's just brilliant. I'm going to read it to you. Speak to it, please. If the clock can get past 8.30, I see no resistance until 9.15, 9.20. And that is a straight shot at all the armchair technicians out there. I know it. You know it. Speak to it. I genuinely love technical analysis. Are some technicians totally full of shit? Yeah. Are most fundamental analysts totally full of shit? Yeah. Are most of us in one way or the other full of shit? Listen, my blog's called The Irrelevant Investor for a reason. I think a lot of this industry and life in general, people are full of shit. What do you do though? Because your Twitter feed is 85% snark primarily related to markets and sports, I think, pop culture in there too a little bit. You have people come at you kind of hard a little bit because you know, you're know you kind of coming at the things that they believe in. Yeah, I'm sensitive to that. And I'm a sensitive soul. I don't deal well with personal attacks. And so I don't even like see my mentions. I turn them off. If I follow you, 
then I will see you reply to me. If I don't follow you, unless I click into the tweet and scroll all the way down to all the messages, I don't even see them. I do scroll into the tweets because I'm a masochist, but I'm not looking to get back. You know what Guy does? Guy literally only responds to the really nasty tweets. And I know that he has dozens a day of people saying really nice things about him. But for some reason, Guy, you just want to highlight this, the nastiest crap out there. I appreciate you bringing that up, Dan. This is my theory, Michael. I'm curious as to yours. And I think you just talked about it, but I want you to sort of dig down a bit deeper. My theory on this is as follows. You can handle Twitter one of three ways. You can ignore, you can escalate, or you can try to defuse. I typically try to the defusing route, number one. Number two, I think it's entirely disingenuous for a lot of these people out there that just retweet all the good shit and you're the greatest, fill in the blank, your tweets are the greatest, your stock prognostication is the greatest. I don't do that. I will respond to those people, but I'll do it. What do they call it when you sneak into somebody's DM, Dan? You call it sliding into their DMs. Yeah, sliding in DM. So I choose to respond to the trolls out there and I try to undress them without them even realizing it. Guy, can I tell you something? I was one of those trolls. No. No, for real. And probably in 2010 or maybe 11, who knows what year it was, you spoke about, I remember the stocks. I remember, I literally remember where I was when you responded. It was Mylan. Remember that stock? Mylan Labs, M-Y-L. And you spoke about it. The stock did shitty. I sent out a not so nice comment. You responded. I don't think I was too mean, but at this point, I never, ever, ever try and make it personal. I don't do that. I don't do that in my real life. I definitely don't want to do it on my fake life on Twitter. I try and do most things in good fun. I'm definitely not an escalator. I'm not a shit thrower. If somebody's personal, I'm not, I really just don't engage. If it's a thoughtful disagreement, sure, I'm happy to go back and forth, but Twitter's not a good forum for thoughtful debate. It's meant for fun. It's meant for news. You're not going to change anybody's mind. I never try and do that. It's a waste of time. Every once in a while, when I was a bit more pugnacious and we'd have these people come at us, I said, listen, you know where I am every day. I leave the NASDAQ at six o'clock. You know what I mean? Like, would you ever say that thing to my face? And it's just really weird that we have these people who just want to be outright nasty. Well, I do get it because like I just said a second ago, I sent a not so nice comment to guy one time. I know where I was in my life at that point in time. It wasn't a good place. And so think about who has the time to really send a nasty comment. It's only people that are projecting. And so we're fortunate. A lot of people don't have it so good. And so they're projecting. They think you're a celebrity, that you're Teflon, that you don't see it, that it doesn't affect you. Like I said, me personally, I am very sensitive to the criticism. I don't want to see it. It does affect me. I wish it didn't, but whatever, I'm human. So I don't like to see it. There's a great story of how you met Josh Brown. I think it's fascinating. I think it's one of those great, Having courage, having the temerity to do something that most people won't. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I've told the story a million times, so I'll try and make it very quick and only touch on the really important points because there are so many details of the story that the stars really had to align for me to meet Josh. I was in a really, really bad place in my life. I had no job, no career. I had nothing. I was not a baby. I was 24 years old, 25 unemployed, flailing. I had inner confidence, but not outward confidence. So I wasn't the type of guy that could bang down doors and I wasn't going to make it happen for myself. So I needed somebody to open the door for me. And I was ready to really mail it in, get a job at wherever, retail, out of options. I had to face, smell the roses. And I was at a Nick game. It was Friday night. We were playing the Miami Heat, game three of the playoffs, 2012. As I'm sitting down, my last, last, last job opportunity As I'm sitting down, I get an email. Sorry, can't help you. So my friend sees my body just slouch. He's like, what's wrong? I told him. And we're getting blown out, obviously, by LeBron and Wade. But Mario Chalmers, my hero, hit a three in the third quarter to put us down by like 21. And I said, fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And my friend's like, where are you going? And I would never have left if I didn't get that email. 
So I'm on the train. Again, it's probably 10.30 at night. This is a Friday. And I'm on my phone going back to Merrick, my hometown. I'm reading Josh's tweet storming about Kurt Cobain's daughter and how we feel so old. And my phone died as soon as we pulled into Merrick. And if my phone didn't die, I probably would have walked right past him. So I get out of the train. My phone dies. I put it in my pocket and I walk right past Josh. I'm like, oh, Josh was my North Star at the time because I had started at the insurance industry trying to sell insurance. I wasn't trying too hard because it was gross, but the exact same perverse incentives to sell, to sell, to sell to people that didn't want to talk to you, that didn't want your product. I saw all of that. So Josh is my North Star and I had been following him on CNBC, whatever, whatever. And when I walked past him, it was like my holy shit moment. I froze. I turned around, basically tackled him. So that moment changed my life. I would be in a much, much, much different place had that not happened. But it also speaks to Josh Brown as well, the fact that he embraced you and gave you that opportunity where a lot of people might have called the police. Yeah. And you know what? That's true. But I think I deserve more credit than he does. Now, I'm only kidding. But when Josh finally did interview me, like we grew up in the same town, we had a lot in common. He knew that I wasn't full of shit. I wasn't pretending to know everything. I just showed him that I will do anything to work for you. And the first day that I was there, he told me to get him notes on BlackBerry, Research in Motion at the time. And I remember seeing him read what I wrote and my mind was blown. It was such a thrill for me. I couldn't believe it. And Dan, I don't think I ever told you this. You were the first person on TV to give me a shout out. 2013. And it's so funny how we've been talking about this for nine years now or eight years now, I should say. I wrote a post on the divergence between small caps and large caps, an ominous warning that didn't come to fruition. And you gave me a shout out. And eight years later, we're still talking about this bullshit. What are the small stocks trying to say? Probably nothing. Yeah, but that's part of it, man. And just so you know, I recognize very quickly, and Josh used to give you so many shout outs. We'd be sitting in the green room, we'd be talking about ideas, and he'd be like, my boy, Batnick, or my main man, this and whatever. And Guy, I was also in awe of his range. And he said, listen, I'm getting a lot of this from my guy. And so that was really impressive. Josh and I had a really weird moment back then because I wasn't really sure what he was doing. And maybe it was before Ritholtz was really formed. And I said to him one day, I said, listen, Batnick, I could really use some assistance like that a research assistant that sort of thing and he goes get the fuck out of here he was like literally he was like he got mad i was like dude i'm not trying to poach your guy or anything like that i just thought maybe share the wealth a little bit i still do the notes for josh three times a week and it still doesn't bother me it keeps me engaged i still like doing it well you guys have a great rapport i was in your office i did compound and friends with you and josh and i was like looking around and i was like all these guys have podcasts and blogs and they tweet all day it must be actually a lot of fun there must be a lot of idea generation throughout the day it's a lot of fun. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Obviously, we take our business and our clients and the relationships very, very seriously. But given my background and the fact that I was going down a dark path, I have to truly pinch myself probably once a week. Like There's no other job I would trade for anything. I have total freedom to do what I want when I want. I work with great people. I love the clients that we serve. So I am beyond blessed, like truly. All right, let's talk about blessed. Rivian just went public today. We're taping this. All right, so here's a company that I took a hard look at. Our mutual friend, Packy McCormick, did a sponsored deep dive on the company. And I actually thought it was fascinating. And, you know, Packy, the eternal optimist, I mean, he made a strong case, not why the valuation right here or the stock makes sense or whatever, but why this company has a great chance of succeeding. He came on Fast Money early in the week to talk about it. I think he did a really nice job of laying out the bull case, I swear to God, when I was done reading his post, I actually put a refundable order in for the SUV Rivian. It looks 
really hot here. But this company was anointed a $100 billion market cap, basically pre-revenue. So I guess my point to you, Michael, and you've looked at a lot of this stuff, whether it be crypto or a lot of these meme stocks, and you're really funny about it, but like this is kind of crazy. Like You've been in the markets now solidly for 10 years, and it seems like things are getting crazier by the week. So Ben goes to me, I've got to take here. What if markets are more efficient, that they're getting to where the puck is going faster than they ever did in the past? And what if Rivian, it would have in the past taken them five, six, seven years, product fit, earnings, misses, beats, cut to the chase. They're $100 billion. Now they have to prove it and they can get cut in half in the first earnings release. But what if the markets are just skating much faster than they used to? That makes sense. But I think the market structure has changed for privates also. If you think about it, these companies used to go public much earlier. The deals were tiny. This was in the late 90s, even the early 2000s. But now that you have these crossover investors, these are public market investors who did not want to wait anymore until an IPO. They were like, why should the VCs have all the fun, that sort of thing? So they've been investing in this one. T. Rowe has invested in like the last three of the four rounds or something like that, right? And so the last- And Amazon. And Amazon is a 20% holder, maybe more after today. They also are their largest customer. They have an order in for 100,000 of their EDVs. That's their electric delivery vehicles here. But I think that's an interesting take. I think, though, to your point, if the company were to come and lay a bomb, let's say in their first publicly traded quarter, stock's going to get creamed. So that's not particularly efficient. But I do get that the acceleration of valuations and the justification for valuations, this is the one thing. Guy and I just did a um, Twitter spaces earlier today with Michael Saylor. You know, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy. How many Bitcoins does he own? Like 115,000 or something? 114,000. We call him Coach Saylor. He's clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose on the Bitcoin there. And he's very articulate about it. But I guess the point that I would make is like, are these investment constructs made for us? You're a bit younger than Guy and me. It seems like that's what's changing, the way people are thinking about investing and time horizons and risk. Yeah, but it's not younger people that are driving these valuations. It's people like you. The executives at Tiro and Amazon that are making these decisions, they're not 36 years old. Yeah. But this is a $100 billion meme stock. If you think about it, right? That's what it is right now, because under no traditional financial metrics or any sort of economic or financial construct that we know of, this makes any sense. So that's changing right before our eyes. So what if we're using old valuation metrics for new companies, right? Software has changed the game entirely. But then I would also say, and we spoke about this last time you were on the show with Josh and I, is that Stocks are blowing up all over the place. It's not like the market is totally overly credulous that they're just granting $100 billion valuations to everyone. Look what happened to Peloton. It was down 50% and then going into earnings, then fell 30% in one day. That was a Black Monday in one day. Zillow, same thing. So you're seeing stocks blowing up all over the place that were high growth companies, obviously ridiculous multiple companies that got smashed with their earnings miss. And there was a chart floating around showing the reaction to stocks after an earnings miss. And it's off the charts how bad it is. So maybe we're getting some repricing Markets at all-time highs. There's so many different cross-currents with what's going on today. It is a very confusing market. I look at it as inefficient when Avis goes from 170 to 502 in about 10 minutes, or Chegg gets cut in half. Zillow, you saw the move there. I mean, I can rattle on all these names, but am I just looking at the word efficiency incorrectly? Well, when you say efficiency, what are we saying? Are we saying the price is always right? Clearly, if you think that, you need to have your head examined. I don't buy that for a second. The price is not always right. When I think of efficient markets, and I do think generally markets are more efficient than less efficient because I don't know if the price is right or wrong. 
I know that I'm probably not going to be able to suss out whether it's right or wrong. When I think efficient markets, that's what I think. Are you going to more likely than not be able to outguess everybody? The market is right more than you are. Put it that way. Yeah, but we're seeing literally some crazy shit here right now. And we've talked about this guy and I a little bit over the last couple of weeks. I mean, in the last month, NVIDIA, and I know this is a name because I watched Josh on the halftime and I know that he's been long this thing and pounds the table in every pullback. But then all of a sudden, what happened in the last month, this company has gained $300 billion, billion in market cap. It trades at 65 times earnings and it trades at about 30, 35 times sales. This is a chip company, okay? And they might get autonomy and AI and VR orders. They better, they better. They better, right? And right now, estimates are for them to decelerate earnings and sales to maybe high teens or something like that. So I guess my point is things are happening that could break the market. If you think about Tesla gained five, $600 billion in market cap in a month. Microsoft went up straight line, 20% in a month. That's a half a trillion dollars in market cap. So I guess the thing that we're having a hard time processing is we've never seen these sorts of things. If you want to revalue some of the moonshots and you want to take chances on those things, whether it be some shit coin or whether it be an EV company, LIDAR company or something like that, that makes sense to me. But what doesn't make sense to me are the biggest names gaining like that. It seems like the market is pulling forward 10 years and 10 minutes with some of these names. But you also look at Microsoft, it's still growing at 40% a year. So yeah, the stock moves are crazy. So is the business. I don't know how, but LinkedIn is growing 47% a year. I don't know where that growth is coming from. I saw a stat the other day about Apple's app store. This is a business that didn't exist. They're projected to be doing something like 20 billion in the next three years. Three to five a quarter. Yeah. That's what Netflix does. And so these companies just keep finding ways. Yeah, but I look at Apple and I say they have an installed base of a billion and a half iOS users. And so it had to go that way. Why does Microsoft have the moat that they have? Why does Apple have the moat that they have? Right now, Amazon, people are kind of rethinking a little bit. The stock has gone nowhere for what, like 18 months or something like that. I actually think what's different this time, Guy, I'd love to get your take, is that the moats have become so large. And it's really interesting that in 2020, you had this huge battle cry for like regulation. What are they going to do to these companies? They're bigger than what? U.S. Steel, Guy. Yeah, but Microsoft 10 years ago didn't have a moat. They probably couldn't spell moat. And it was only under this leadership that they created this moat. And it's fascinating to me. People say, well, look at IBM. They can't turn on a dime. And they're this huge aircraft carrier in the middle of an ocean. Yeah, that's true. Microsoft was that same aircraft carrier. And they figured it out. So, Michael, I guess my question to you is, does management matter more now than ever? I just look at Microsoft and IBM just as an example. But there are dozens of examples like that. Yeah, I'm not. I don't even want to. I'm not a student of management, so I don't know. To Dan's bigger point is like the moves that we're seeing and Tesla added $600 billion in market cap in 30 days. I think the problem is you see shit like this and it makes you want to sell everything and just say, you know what? Nothing makes sense. I'm going to wait for a pullback. And I'm very sympathetic to that because I feel the same way. My point is that we've had stories like this Over the years, it's so easy to fall into that trap of, I want to get off the train. This is too crazy for me. I'm going to wait. The market could stay crazier longer than you could say sovereign or whatever uh, Keynes allegedly said. I really really feel like that's like uh, one of the most salient points of the market over the last decade. All right. I'm sure we're going to go back to the markets with Dan Nathan. I know you're an NBA guy. You mentioned Mario Chalmers. Now, my sense is you love him because he's a guy that never should have made it. I think he was born in Alaska. I mean, the chances of him making playing the NBA are like zero. And there's some kinship, I would imagine, although there are other reasons I'm sure you dig Mario Chalmers. Your favorite Nick of all time, give it to me. I'll give it to you in one sec. Actually, I hated Mario Chalmers because he hit that shot in Kansas against Memphis and I would have won the bracket that year. I only like him because he made that shot and made me leave the garden and meet Josh. My favorite Nick of all time is Patrick Ewing and there's probably not even a number two. I guess number two would be Starks and Oakley, that whole squad. 
What do you say to the people? Patrick never won it. Listen, I went to Georgetown. I was there actually when they won a national championship. Yeah, Michael Jordan. It's That's the answer. That's exactly right. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Patrick Ewing had a storied career. Those Nick Bulls series were epic. As a matter of fact, if they show up on ESPN, the Ocho, I am absolutely watching it tonight. I've watched some of these games on YouTube and some of them, some of them I forget, but a lot of them I literally do remember watching them. And the debate between LeBron and Michael, whatever, like my opinion is that the gap between Michael and the second best player in the league was so gigantic. Like who was even the second best player? Like, honestly, in my opinion, probably Hakeem and whatever. But in his peer group, was it Clyde? Like, are you kidding me? He- no. And it's funny about Clyde. Like he actually laughed about Clyde Drexler. I mean, people made that comparison back in the day. And you watch that documentary about Jordan and he sort of snickered. And Clyde is one of the top 50 players of all time, but he was nowhere close to where Jordan was. Right. So LeBron and all his greatness, and I'm not a LeBron hater. I love to hate LeBron. You can't say anything bad about him, the person, the player. But like Durant was right there with him. Kawhi was right there with him. So that's my two cents on that. Guys, so since I feel like I'm talking to my dad, my dad doesn't know anything about crypto. I imagine you know more than my dad. Dad, what do you think about crypto? First of all, how old's your old man? I'm going to say 69 nice. I think he's probably 68, 69-ish. Let's put it this way. I'm closer in age to your father than I am to you, number one. This is what I think about crypto. I don't understand it. I read BK's book, The Bitcoin Big Bang Theory, whatever the hell it is. I've spoken to Sailor a number of times. I consider myself relatively intelligent. I can't wrap my head around it. It doesn't mean it's not viable. I mean, right now, I think as we're sitting here, crypto as a market cap is $3 trillion, probably going to surpass gold over the next couple of years. But I just don't understand it, Michael Batnick. Let me tell you about something that happened to me last night. So I've been spending a lot of time, a lot more time than I possibly would have thought a year ago trying to learn about this stuff because the more I learn, the more fascinated I am, which is everybody's experience. And so my friend, Justin Paterno has been telling me about these NFTs and I spend some time on the weekend on OpenSea spending hundreds of dollars on gas to buy a $100 NFT and just learning and, and having fun. And Justin told me about this ENS domain name where you could register michaelbatnick.eth. That will be your wallet. That will be your address. That will be how people identify with you. So I, I registered that domain name. And two nights ago, I learned that ENS, which is a DAO, I can't explain much more about it other than that. They did an airdrop of tokens to people that have registered their domain. So I got $2,000 worth of tokens for being a user. I think Justin got a lot more than that for being an old user. Imagine Twitter did this. For example, hey, you've spent seven years of your life every single day addicted to our machine. Thank you for that. We've created $20 billion in market cap. It should be 100, but we suck. But thank you for doing what you're doing. Here, let me give back. I really think when I experienced that as a user, I did not expect that. I feel like I saw the future. Holy shit, this is going to be so massive. Well, that is the ethos of Web3, right? It's Users owning the products. It's, it's a decentralized, and, and listen, you and I have learned a lot from people like Justin, Packy McCormick, very obviously here. And listen, I think it comes down to changing your mindset about things. You mentioned Twitter has a $43 billion market cap. It went public. You ready for this? It's trading at $53. It went public eight years ago this week at $26. $26. Okay. So it's up a hundred percent. The NASDAQ's probably up 200 or probably 300%. So they've actually destroyed a lot of value. If you think about it, guy, just, so you know, we have risk reversal.ens or .eth. So, so did we, you guys claim your co- you know tokens? What? I had to go out Monday night. So I, I, the drop, can I still claim them or no? You have until May. All right. I'm going to do that until May. It's fucking November. I mean, you sounded like there's urgency here. Oh, urgency. It's yours. You have until May, yeah. but think about 
Okay, so Twitter released their Twitter blue yesterday. Finally, you can edit tweets before they get sent. Finally, you can unscroll. Like you could change the icon. Imagine if Twitter was in the hands of its users, how far ahead it would be versus where it is today. I think the vision that Mark Zuckerberg laid out for the new Facebook was being less extractive. If you think about what are some of the big issues that every almost every tech or media company has with Apple is that they have this app store. It's basically a closed garden. They can charge whatever they want. So that's actually the way all these protocols are being built for Web3. There's going to be a war. I mean, there's going to be a tech war. It's probably going to be in the metaverse guy. You're going to have to be buying some in-game sort of armor and stuff like that. Well, all the value accrued to Apple. Now the value will accrue to the users. And that is a monumental shift. Yeah, a lot of people who are diehard capitalists don't really get how that's going to work in a way. Because if you think about what are the incentives, right, for companies to build, and you just use the term DAO, decentralized autonomous organizations, right? So they can go out and they can raise capital in a way where there's not centralized ownership of that. They can use the tokens that they own to vote on how the direction of the project's going to go. So I've obviously been reading about it. I'm very interested in it because I remember when I started in this business in the late 90s, I worked at SAC Capital. Capital. I was the youngest guy on the desk and all they wanted to do was trade the most volatile things. And they looked at me and they said, you're the youngest, dumbest looking guy here. Go figure out what XCIT, what YHOO, what AOL, what AMZN do. And so that's how I started following tech. And to me, I was skeptical. That's the thing. Everyone starts out skeptical. So do I. Yeah, I was so, so skeptical. Well, it seems like I listen to you and I read your blog. It seems like you are going down the rabbit hole right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I'm much more excited about the stuff that I just mentioned than I am the price of Bitcoin. So it's really funny. So forget Bitcoin. I would much rather on every pullback in ETH this year, I've been buying rather than kind of putting more money in the stock market. Is that something that's going to change the way that this generation is investing in a way? All the money that's going into the NFTs right now, that's money that would have gone into the stock market. It could have even gone to Robinhood and meme trading. And, and by the way, so if you have your account, wherever you have your account at these one of these centralized organizations, you can stake your ETH and you could get paid. Instead of getting literally five basis points in a checking account, you could own the future of the internet. You could get paid in it. I mean, it's exciting times. We have something in the works. I think this is going to happen. It's going to be Guy, Dan, Danny, Josh, and Michael Batnick. That's going to be this joint pod that we're going to do. And uh, it's going to be- Nobody's going to get a word in. Oh my God. Can you imagine? What do they call when things go viral, Dan? They call it goes they call viral. It viral. Yeah, it goes viral. You know, Amanda Diaz is going to have to step in and she's going to have to ref this thing. Yeah, it was definitely too short, Michael. We really appreciate you joining us. You guys know where to follow him on Twitter. Check out the Irrelevant Investor blog. He also does Animal Spirits. that has more than 10 million downloads since it started. Michael, thanks for joining us here, man. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.